the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the April 2015 podcast. This month, we'll be profiling the career and current work of two of the most eminent academics at the school. Professor Vikram Patel, whose research focuses on how to bring better mental health care to low-resource communities and who has just been included in this year's Time magazine list of 100 most influential people. There seems to be a certain degree of arbitrariness when you find yourself on the same list as Vladimir Putin. And Professor Sir Brian Greenwood, who has dedicated his career to saving children's lives by tackling malaria, meningitis and pneumonia and has been at the forefront of developing a malaria vaccine. Lots of progress has been made in the last 10 years, but we mustn't forget that there's still half a million people dying from malaria every year, and most of those are children in Africa. Time magazine has named Vikram Patel, psychiatrist and professor of international mental health at the school, among the 2015 Time 100, its annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. We spoke to Vikram, who's based at the Sangat Mental Health Research Centre, an NGO in Goa, about being included on the list and about his career in championing mental health research in developing nations. found out about a fortnight ago, uh, and I have to say uh, that when I first got the email, I thought it was a spam mail. And so I uh, actually uh, sent this to the school's press officer saying, I think this is a spam mail, but perhaps you might want to investigate a bit. So, so in your spam email, Vikram, you, you might... You know, you might have been awarded the Nobel Prize or, you know, some other big prize. You, you might have thrown uh, no, actually, away. it wasn't in the spam mail. I thought it was spam. You know how you get these emails saying, you know, you've been selected uh, for, you know, to receive this or that award. Congratulations on, on being uh, in, in the time 100. Um, have, you, have you seen the rest of the list? Uh, I have. I've just been looking at it today. They just announced it today. Uh, and I'm absolutely gobsmacked to be in the company of some of those, uh, those individuals. What's nice is the list includes many unknown people like me uh, who previously have been working in a field without really much recognition, uh, alongside, of course, the people who are very well known. Just looking at the list, so they've, they've divided it up into uh, five sections, and you, you're, a pi- you're a pioneer, and, uh, and accompanying you in, in the pioneer session is uh, actresses Emma Watson from uh, Harry Potter fame, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, have, you, have you met either of those two? <laughs> no, I actually haven't met either of them, but I wish I, I, I could. And to be perfectly honest, they're not the kind of people that people at the London School would ever encounter. And, and also some of the others. Tim Cook from Apple, Kim Kardashian, Angela Merkel, Vladimir Putin, Björk and uh, Pope Francis. So uh, in, in kind of in, interesting company there. That would be an interesting uh, dinner party, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be an interesting dinner party, but there you are. You know, I have to say, Julian, I'm not sure how people make up these lists. Uh, uh, there seems to be a certain degree of arbitrariness when you find yourself on the same list as Vladimir Putin. But uh, the, the honour is one that I take uh, with great humility and one that I think is more about the cause um, rather than the person in this particular instance. Just look at your career. Because it's, it's, it's a really interesting journey that you've gone on, both geographically but also in a scientific sense, That in that your initial thoughts on depression being tackled in a western way what you initially thought that that wasn't the right way to be to be done in a developing world but but you've changed over the last 20 years so can i just wonder if you can summarize some of that some of the, the initial thinking and what led you to to change your your ideas so um, first of all, to say that when I started my work, uh, I, I trained, uh, you know, I, I, yes, you're right, I've had a, a fairly 
you know, unusual, as it were, global uh, uh, training in medicine and psychiatry. I trained in medicine in Mumbai, and then I did uh, uh, my further training in Oxford, and then at King's, um, at the Maudsley Hospital, where I trained in psychiatry, and then I went on to join the school in the year 2000. Um, and uh, essentially, when I was doing my PhD, I chose to do my work in Zimbabwe, and this was where I um, discovered, of course, that, you know, the concepts of depression that were used by biomedical models of uh, care in psychiatry really didn't translate that well into uh, developing country settings like Zimbabwe. But having said this, I also found that that didn't mean that the the distress that we associate with depression did not occur. Uh, and so it was possible to identify people in the clinics of uh, Zimbabwe who one would consider had depression, but we wouldn't necessarily have to apply the diagnostic label of depression to those individuals, but instead use labels that they found uh, contextually acceptable and not stigmatizing. I also found that the sorts of interventions that we might have used, say, in London, could be applied with equal effect, actually, in Zimbabwe. But in addition, uh, that in Zimbabwe there was also um, a number of other things that people could do. For example, go to traditional healers, engage the family in different kinds of rituals, etc., that were also potentially very valuable. So I'd, I'd like to say today that my, my approach to mental health in the global context is an integrative one, one that adopts the most useful uh, best practices from medicine, as well as those that are contextually uh, utilized by people. Uh, and I think in, in that integrative model, one can arrive at a, a set of practices that are uh, not just very effective, but also acceptable to people in particular cultural contexts. And is that an ethos which is very much at the heart of the Sangas sensor in, in Goa? Absolutely. See, you know, Sangatha was an organization I co-founded with uh, a few other colleagues in Goa when I was unemployed. Um, there was this 18-month uh, period in my career, which I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I rarely talk about, which is when I, when I went to India, back to India in 1995 as a Welcome Trust uh, employee, uh, on a Welcome Trust project, rather, uh, I was working for, for the Institute of Psychiatry in South London. And uh, there was then a change in Welcome Trust funding policies. And so I was suddenly left stranded in India without a job. Um, upon which my, uh, my mentor in the Institute, Anthony Mann, said, you know, I should just come back to Britain. I was a psychiatrist. I just joined the NHS, etc., you know. And I decided uh, really not to do that, but instead to invest my energies in starting an NGO through which I could implement uh, grassroots work. Uh, and I've never really looked back. It's been the best decision I made. And of course, Sangat has subsequently become the lead partner for the school's mental health uh, uh, research in India. Uh, and yes, its model is very much community-oriented, very much about using locally available human resources, very much about uh, uh, delivering interventions that are culturally appropriate. And um, was this an area which just hadn't been studied before or just there just wasn't the psychiatrists around to, to do the work or the, it just wasn't an important research project to do? Well, it certainly wasn't an important research project. There was very little funding for mental health research in those days. Um, uh, but what research did occur was also fairly out of uh, context to the uh, community. It, it tended to be done in hospitals. It tended to have a very strong biomedical framework. 
there was very little crosstalk with other disciplines. And I have to say, being at the school, one of the most important influences for me has been the opportunity for interdisciplinary crosstalk that you get at the school. So many of my ideas um, uh, about the kind of work that I do in mental health in India have been influenced by seeing my colleagues in other areas of public health, like HIV you know, and maternal health at the school, how they have actually addressed some of the barriers in their research in low resource settings. So I've really actually learned a lot from other colleagues in other areas of global health. And, you know, it has to be said that many of the traditional orthodox models of psychiatric research uh, in, uh, in the developing world tended to be very orthodox and very uh, biomedical uh, as opposed to uh, grounded in global health uh, and communities. Some of what you've found is that there are universal reasons why people become depressed. One of the biggest reasons is an economic uh, deprivation. Is it purely just how poor people are? Or is it about the inequality perceived in a country? In that, are there poor countries where people are generally happy, in, in quotation marks, but where the inequality level is much lower, whereas, say, in the UK or in, in the States, where we, we, we're used to kind of talking about depression now and, and, and psychiatric problems, where it's perceived that the, there's a much bigger inequality, if that makes sense. You know, it does make sense. I think the question you're asking is one of the most important ones in understanding the social determinants of depression. Um, I think poverty, both absolute and relative, um, are both very important predictors of uh, uh, the prevalence of depression in any population. Um, there's no question that people who live in absolute poverty, it's almost a no-brainer, really, if you live in conditions of extreme poverty, that you're likely to have far more stresses in your daily life, just the stress of remaining alive is, is one that can uh, uh, wear one's mind down and lead to the sorts of symptoms we associate with depression. Uh, but equally, I think what's even more interesting is the fact that uh, if you have a country like in the OECD world, um, where there is almost no absolute poverty, but there are increasing levels of relative poverty or income inequality, there's really great work from people like Wilkinson and others, which is showing that uh, the higher the levels of income inequality, the greater is the burden of mental illness in the population, showing that income inequality is bad for the whole population and not just for those who are poor. And I'm guessing that India, with a, uh, a perceived inequality quite high between the very rich and the very poor, that this is a particular problem in that country. Well, India's got a double-barrel double uh, problem. It's got not only very high rates of absolute poverty, with about a quarter or a third of the population living in absolute poverty. Uh, you know, we're talking of poverty where you aren't able to actually meet your basic needs of food every day. Um, and piggybacked on that, you've got widening levels of income inequality. Um, India didn't used to be such an unequal country now as, uh, as, it is, uh, as it was, say, 20 years ago. And I think the widening inequality is uh, certainly a matter of considerable concern uh, to um, anyone who is involved in the mental health field. And has any of the work that, that you're doing in India uh, or any of the other developing nations fed back into the Western nations. What, what can we learn? Well, I, I guess, you know, I think one of the great things about global health is the idea that you can learn from each other. There isn't a one-way flow of knowledge. And there's no question that there are certain kinds of innovations and approaches to mental health care in India and China uh, that could have great value uh, in rich countries. And I just want to pinpoint, uh, you know, pick up on two of them. The first is the fact that in both of these countries, people with mental health problems and disabilities actually play a number of different roles within their families and communities that that are quite productive and rewarding. And this is a very important part of recovery. Um, and I think many of those roles have become 
invisible or absent in highly industrialized societies like Britain. Uh, and so one may begin to examine whether there may be a way to bring back these larger roles um, uh, that have been, as it were, automated and, 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 uh, and, and removed from uh, the potential for human beings to be involved with. Um, and the second important innovation is, again, at the human resource level, is where ordinary people in the communities can play an active role uh, in, as frontline workers in providing mental health care. And certainly in India, this is a, this is a, an, a very good example of how uh, some of the barriers that we face in addressing the shortage of um, uh, mental health specialists is being, uh, is being tackled by using ordinary people, community health workers, to deliver uh, psychological and social interventions. That was Professor Vikram Patel, and you can hear an extended version of that interview via our website at lshtm.ac.uk. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Malaria is one of the world's biggest killers. The World Health Organization estimates that 660,000 people die from the disease each year. On the 24th of April, a day before World Malaria Day, new research led by Professor Brian Greenwood from the school was published in The Lancet. It revealed the final results from the RTS's vaccine trial, the most advanced vaccine in development. Professor Greenwood has worked on this vaccine for 20 years and the findings will be instrumental in how effective the vaccine will be in protecting young children from malaria. It may also help the WHO decide whether to make it the first ever vaccine available. Professor Greenwood told us more about the vaccine and about his lengthy career in this research field. Well, this is the vaccine developed by first the um, Walter Reed in the United States and then picked up by GlaxoSmithKline. And they've been working on this vaccine for about 20 years now. And it is the sort of first malaria vaccine that is getting near to being licensed for for use. Tell me a little bit about what the vaccine is. How, how does it work? Well, th this vaccine is uh, directed against the sporozoite, which is part of the malaria parasite that is injected into the blood uh, when it bites somebody. And it, the sporozoite, a bit like a wriggly worm, goes through the bloodstream and then gets into the liver and it develops in the liver. The person doesn't know that's happening, you don't feel ill at that time, but then after about 10 days, the parasite breaks out from the liver, gets into the blood, gets into the red cells, and that's when people feel ill. So this vaccine is actually probably attacking both the sporozoite before it gets into the liver, but then also it's inducing an antibody response that can kill the parasite before it escapes into the blood. And I guess the key thing with any vaccine, it's given to people before they're ever infected, before they're bitten by a mosquito. Yes, so, so this is aimed at stopping people getting infected. Some people are developing vaccines that actually try to damp down the effect of the infection. So it doesn't stop the people getting infected, but they don't get ill with it. And other vaccines are actually trying to stop the ability of the parasite to spread to another person. But this one is directed actually at stopping infection. Problem is that uh, perhaps 20, 30, 50 sporozoites are injected. So it's a bit like Star Wars with the missiles coming in, and you've got to get all of them. Um, and even if one survives and gets into the liver and then multiplies and breaks out into the bloodstream, the person may get ill. So it's, it is quite tough. You've got to have a really very effective vaccine to stop everyone, every sporozoite, from getting into the liver or killing every parasite whilst it's growing in the liver. 
Tell me about the results of the trial. That is obviously the big question. How effective is this vaccine? Well, it's really difficult. We're all used to talking about half glasses full and half glasses empty. And I think that's a, a, a good description of what has happened here. I mean, there was a hope at the beginning that it would we would have a malaria vaccine like a measles vaccine that you could give to everybody and you would get complete protection. It was probably a bit naive, really, because the parasite's very clever. It's much more complicated than a, a measles virus. And so <clears throat> what does we have with this vaccine is it gives partial... And so in the older children, the sort of best results is that over four years, if they had the three initial injections and then the booster dose, they get about 35% protection. So I think a useful way of thinking about this is the number of cases prevented by a 1,000 children vaccinated. On average, in the older children, it was about um, just under 2,000 for the four-year period. So you could say that for 1,000 children vaccinated, you say, I think the figure was 1,770 cases of malaria. But what was really uh, very interesting is that it depends on what the level of malaria is in that area. And if you're in somewhere where malaria happens, but it's like uh, not a very big problem, like the Gambia or Senegal, which I know, or perhaps parts of Southern Africa, where children only perhaps one in 10 children get malaria, then you're not going to save a lot of cases with a 30% efficacious vaccine. But for example, like in Burkina Faso, where I've just been, where there's really high transmission going on, the children may be getting two or three or four attacks a year. In that situation, if you vaccinate 1,000 children, you might say save two or three or 4,000 cases of malaria. And so I think one of the things that will influence the decision of how you might use this vaccine is how big a problem is malaria in your area. So for 1,000 children that are vaccinated, there's 1,700 cases yes. potentially prevented. That's more cases than children. How, how does that work? That's over four years. Some children will get cases every year. Um, some will get two or three episodes of malaria in the same year. But I, I think, I mean, this is out on the average across all the, all the sites. Um, that's the number of cases you would pre prevent. I think it's probably more helpful to do this by country and say if or by level of transmission of malaria and one of the things that's in the paper sets that out there is a figure that starts off at Kilifi on, on the coast of Kenya where malaria is nearly gone there so if you vaccinated a thousand children there you would save 50 cases of malaria or something at the right at the top is Siaya by Lake Victoria if you vaccinated a thousand cases there I can't remember the exact figure I think it's something like three thousand or four thousand uh, cases of malaria. So that should be helpful in people making the decision where you would use that vaccine. So ultimately this could save a lot of lives. It can. I mean we have to remember remember that there's still half, you know, a lot of progress has been made in the last 10 years but we mustn't forget that there's still half a million people dying from malaria every year and most of those are children in in Africa. And that's in spite of all our, all the work that's gone into getting better treatments, ACTs, bed nets really are quite widely distributed now with pretty good coverage in most areas, some spraying and things. And still, uh, you're getting half a million deaths a year. What next for the vaccine? So we've had the results of this trial. What would be your hopes for the future? Well, I think two things happen. I mean, we ha have to, I've been telling you about the good things. There are, obviously, there are costs 
I mean, the vaccines, can, we don't know exactly what, what it will cost. And there have been some side effects as well. So that has to come into the equation. And some children get a fever afterwards. Um, and uh, even some of those children get febrile convulsions. If they get a high fever, they have a convulsion. But it's, nothing serious has come from that. From that, I mean, they've all recovered from from those combustion, which is quite common after vaccines. Um, but there is an increased incidence of meningitis, which is surprising. Nobody can explain it. <laughs> it doesn't seem to make biological sense. But that's something that has to be watched. And to take a step back in a broader picture, mm -hmm. what first got you interested in medicine in, in this part yeah. of the world? Why did I first go to work in Africa? Uh, I suppose. Partly excitement, doing something different, um, and if I'm honest, I guess some altruism as well. That younger people wanted to do something. It was just sort of after the time that African countries were becoming independent, um, and I, I didn't. I imagined originally it would be for a year or two. I didn't realise it was a a lifetime commitment. But I think for people who get to know Africa, it gets to you, um, you know. And, I've always wanted to go back and work there. What sort of things have you done? Tell me a little bit about the journey you've taken from mm. over those 50 years. Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story because when I started, I well, did my house jobs and things in London, London Teaching Hospital. And it was pretty unusual then for people to go and work in Africa. Most people then would have gone to the States. Their BTA was there being to America. My BTA was being... To, to Africa. So I did two years in Nigeria and then the Civil War, the Biafran War happened, I was there for part of that. That was working in a big teaching hospital. Then I came back to learn some immunology because I realised that, that as time went on, if you were going to help that, you needed to have specialist skills, not just being a, a general doctor. So I spent three years back here learning some immunology. And then in 1970, I was torn, I was offered a job in Canada. <laughs> good job there, or could I go back to Nigeria to help start, because the war was over by then, start a new medical school from scratch, which, um, which was led by Professor Parry, who's been long connections with the school, school here. And uh, so I went back and we started a new medical school in a district hospital. That was, Nigeria was in pretty bad shape then after the war, and that was very rewarding, and I spent 10 years there. How I got into malaria is an interesting story because when in my first two years I was working on, on as I was doing immunology on autoimmune diseases and joint diseases and it was strange because there weren't any there in Nigeria and this was a good you know, university college hospital, Abaddon was a well equipped hospital, teaching hospital as good as any of the ones in London at that time <clears throat> and you might have expected to see that. And we know that um, autoimmune diseases are very common in uh, the West Indies and in Americans of African des descent. It's even more common than in, in Caucasians. So it couldn't be a ge genetic thing. It had to be something in the environment. So I thought, well, could this be malaria that was having a protective effect? So when I came back to do my immunology training, we did some experiments in uh, mice and things that showed that that was true. If you gave the baby mice malaria, it stopped them getting their autoimmune diseases. Kind of swings and, what, and roundabouts there, <laughs> isn't it? And then, so, I, so I changed that. The job I was offered in Canada was as a rheumatologist, immunologist, and that's so I changed the focus from working on the sort of immunology onto malaria. How does it feel to have been involved in the development of this vaccine right from the start? You were right in at the yeah, early stage yeah. trials. I mean, it is, it's been a long journey. I think 
it's a sort of mixture of pride, I suppose, that it's got as far as it has, and a slight disappointment that the results aren't, aren't better. It would have been great. Um, I've been involved in the development of the meningitis vaccine. It's just well, that was a wonder. It just that's much easier disease to deal with. You get ninety percent protection, one do- one shot. That's really great. Everybody realised from the beginning that malaria would be much more, much more difficult. Um, and I think you know it is a credit to the to the donors, the companies, thing that they've stuck with it for the, the first trial we did in the Gambia, I was just looking this morning, it was in 1998, so that's uh, 17 years, you know, and they've kept with it and through to the end to do that. And uh, when initial results weren't absolutely dramatic, they could possibly have, have given up with that. So th- this this is not going to be the ultimate malaria vaccine. There would be better malaria vaccines, but it would be a, a definite step forward, and I hope that will happen, that it gets licensed, that it gets used in the right situations um, that we learn that it's safe whilst people are, are developing better vaccines. That was Professor Sir Brian Greenwood. As always, you can hear longer versions of all the interviews on this and every month's podcast by visiting the school website at lshtm.ac.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.